I want to invite you that you would open your Bible uh, to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, because here we're going to talk about the responsibility that we have. If we truly believe that we're living in the last days, we have a responsibility to share our faith. We have a responsibility to let others know about Jesus. It should provoke us in urgency. It should provoke us uh, to stand for truth, for righteousness, to go out and uh, to share the love of Christ, the message. And here we know that Paul had been for three chapters encouraging the church, commending the church because they stood for truth, because they had a hope that was enduring in the midst of suffering or affliction. And not only did he talk about the motive of ministry, commending them for their testimony, but at the end of chapter 3, he prays for them. He prays for them having not had the opportunity to be with them physically. And a part of his prayer was that their faith would be made perfect. If you remember there from verses 11 to verse 13, you see that he prays for the church of chapter 3. And he prays that their faith would mature. He prays also that God would direct their way to the church, that God would make a way where there was seemed to be no way, that God would clear the path so that Paul can make it out and encourage the church personally there at Thessalonica. But what he prays specifically for them is that, number one, they would abound in love, and also that they would be blameless and holy. That they would abound in love and that they would be blameless and holy. Now, it's important that we remember what he was praying for because these two specific prayer requests regarding abounding in love, regarding now being blameless and holy, they only pave the way to his teaching regarding love and holiness. Because not only does he pray that this would be real in their lives, now he teaches regarding these two things. He says, I want you to abound more and more in love. I want you to abound more and holiness. These are two essentials for the Christian life when it comes to growth. Today, if you want to know if you're truly growing with Christ Jesus, it doesn't matter how much you're serving in ministry. It doesn't matter what you're doing for the Lord. Notice, your Christian growth is all dependent upon the love that you have in your life that is of Christ and the holiness in your life as well. True maturity is measured by love and by holiness. Remember that. These are two essentials for Christian growth. And what he's now exhorting them in chapter 4 is not unto perfection, but notice this, unto progress. He says, yes, I want you to mature, but it's important in order for you to mature that you would now progress. And I want to ask you today as you come into church, how does your Christian life look like in terms of progress? Are you taking steps forward right now in your walk with Christ? Are you taking steps of faith? Are you continuing to progress when it comes to love, progress and grow when it comes to holiness? Because here in chapter 4, it's all about the doctrine of sanctification. I want you to write that word down today in your notes, sanctification. Justification means that you are right with God now because you receive Jesus as your Lord and Savior when he paid the penalty of your sins on the cross. But as soon as that happened, justification also began. And what does that mean? That he set you apart now from the world unto God, from sin, from the world, from the flesh. We're set apart for God's special purpose. So regardless of how far you have come, we must continue to grow in terms of our sanctification. And you may say, well, you know what? Ten years ago, I was not where I am today. Or three months ago, or last week, I'm growing in the Lord. And yes, you may be growing, but notice he encourages them here. Grow even so more and more. Have you ever maybe done and accomplished something, and you always hear maybe a parent tell a little child, well, you did a great job, but you can do better. And we don't like hearing that answer. But here he tells them the very same thing. You have been growing, and I want you to do better. I want you to grow more and more. And realize this, none of us have arrived. We might not be where we were yesterday, but we should continue to grow so that we don't stay at where we are today. 
You know what Paul told the church of Philippi? Not that I've already attained it, or not that I'm already perfected, I press on. I'm not comfortable. I don't think I've arrived. I don't think I've achieved it. I don't think that I've met the standard. I don't count myself to have apprehended. I don't think that I've arrived yet. I am still pressing on. Today, are you still pressing on in this race? Are you still in the race pressing on? In fact, Peter tells the church that was going through suffering. 2 Peter 3.18, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. What are you called to do to grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Savior, Jesus Christ? That, that is my heart for you as well, that it's found in Scripture. You would come to church and you wouldn't say, you know what, I, I, I love the church because of worship or because of the pastor or because of the programs and ministry. I know I, I love coming to church because I'm growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ. That that's what I'm getting out of church. Growing in the grace, growing in the knowledge of Jesus Christ, opening up his word, understanding it, knowing him more. That is what Christian growth looks like, that you know him more, that you have fellowship with him more. So he exhorts the Thessalonian church to this, three things, to please God, you can write this down, number two, to obey God, and number three, to glorify God. What is it that he's exhorting them to do, to please God, to obey God, to glorify God. In fact, I'll invite you that you would stand on your feet this morning with me so that we read God's word there in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. What does it mean to please God, to obey God, and to glorify God? Let's read it together. Finally, then, brethren, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that you should abound more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God. That each of you should know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and in honor. Verse 5, not in passions of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God. For God did not call us to uncleanness, but in holiness. Lord, we come before you this morning. Our desire is not that we would reject what you have for us, but that we would receive it. We want to receive this as if it's for us personally. Receive it, not reject it, not rebel against it not excuse ourselves, but that we would press on, that we would excel even more, grow, increase, that we would grow unto Christ's likeness. So speak to us regarding the areas of our lives that are holding us back, whether it's sin or whether it's weights, whatever it would be, would you speak to us now in Jesus' name? Together we said, amen. You may be seated. The title of the message is this, Excel Still More and More. Excel Still More and More. You see, he's reminding them that the Lord is coming. And the fact that the Lord is coming, it's a strengthening truth. There's nothing that should motivate us more unto love. There should be nothing that would motivate us as Christians more unto holiness than to know that Jesus is coming soon, that we would say we want to live a life that pleases God until he comes or until he calls us home. Amen? Now notice there in verse 1, it says, Finally then, brethren, we urge you and exhort you in the Lord Jesus. Here after three chapters, you see that he uses the word finally, brethren. Now anytime a pastor says finally, don't ever think he's about to finish. He usually still has a lot more to say. So here he says finally, but then he still writes for another two chapters. Now, this finally is not a finally of conclusion. It's a finally of transition. Note that. It's a finally of transition. And he begins here with an exhortation now to abound. He's taught, he's reminded, he's exhorted, he's encouraged the first three chapters regarding their faith. But now he says, we urge you, finally, brethren, we exhort you 
in the Lord Jesus. And that word there, to exhort or to urge, it's a command. It means to call someone aside and then to appeal to them, to, to come alongside another and appeal to them, to plead, to charge them. This is why he uses those words. I urge you, I plead with you, I exhort you, I come alongside and I encourage you, I appeal and plead for this. Finally, now that word finally means for the rest. He's addressing doctrine in terms of its application to your life. Now I want to talk to you about how God wants to you to live your life or give you the instructions regarding how a believer is supposed to live when it comes to spiritual morality. You see, the, the way and we learn spiritual morality is not from the world, it's from the Bible. We, we don't get our moral standards from culture, from man, from education outside of the Bible. We find the standard to the moral law from what the Spirit has bore witness in our hearts and from the Word of God. That's why God has given you a conscience, so that you would know the difference between right and wrong, so that you would know what is the truth and what is false. That's why He's given you His Word. And He says, now, in, in response to the truth of the gospel, or because you've given your life to Jesus Christ, because the life of Christ is flowing in you and through you. Notice what he says here, in the Lord Jesus. Now I want you to look at that in verse 1. He says, I'm exhorting you in the Lord Jesus with the divine authority of Christ Jesus. Since you have a new life in him, because you belong to Jesus now, because he's your Lord, because he's your master, because he's your savior, because you're following Christ now, because his life is flowing through you. Notice, the exhortation comes from this position. Because you've been born again now. You belong to Jesus, in the Lord Jesus, because you're in him now. That you would abound more and more. Now notice what he's saying, that you would overflow, that you would increase, that you would grow. Now Paul was very thankful for this church, and he's made it very clear in the first few chapters. He's thankful that they stood firm in the face of pressure and persecution and opposition and that they were not giving in. He, he was grateful to God that they were becoming more mature. But now he's encouraging them to still continue to demonstrate spiritual growth, to not become stagnant, to, to, to not plateau spiritually, to not become comfortable or complacent. How easy is it after being in church for many years or knowing and growing up in the faith, to start to become complacent. And after you become complacent, you start to drift away and start to backslide. No, he's saying here, I want you to even grow more and more. You haven't arrived. This, this is something that we will never complete in this life. Notice, your spiritual growth will never be complete until you go to heaven. We have to continue to grow and more, abound in it, and, and circle the words there in your Bible, in verse 1, more and more. No matter how far as a Christian you've come, when it comes to holiness, when it comes to love, we still have the opportunity to grow. This is the spiritual priority. This is the spiritual progress that he's looking for in the church. Yes, you are already living this way, church, but I encourage you to do so more and more. Would you say that out loud with me? More and more. Now notice at the end of verse 1, what does he say? That you would grow more and more just as you receive from us how you ought to walk to please God. Now not only are you to grow more and more, abound and increase, and that there should be spiritual growth and progress, but notice I'm going to tell you what to do. You are to grow in a way that pleases God. Christian growth, spiritual growth, always happens when you're living in a way that pleases God. This is why he says, just as you received from us, you've already received this. You already know what to do. You've already learned this. We taught you how you should walk. Notice there in verse 1, he said, you receive how you ought to walk. That word ought means a must. You've received, you've learned, you've received the lesson how you should which denotes a, a moral necessity, something that's mandatory, something that's a must here. 
how you should live your spiritual life. You know how you should walk. Your, your, your spiritual life involves a walk. That's what the Christian life is. It doesn't only begin with a step of faith. Maybe it started one day where you said, I'm taking a step of faith and trusting the Lord Jesus as my personal Lord and Savior, but it continues with another step of faith towards Christ-likeness. It continues as one step and then followed by another step that involves steps and progress. That's what the walk looks like. When you think about a walk, it now makes sense, a picture that is drawn when one person is taking one step after the other towards a specific direction where they know where they're going. And he says here in verse 1, just as you receive how you should walk in a way that pleases God. Now, now look at there in verse 1 and underline that in your Bible, to please God. That is the exhortation, that you would walk in a way that pleases God, that you would live in a way that pleases God, that your spiritual walk would please God. This is the guiding principle of Christian behavior. Anything that you do right now, whether it's in your work, whether it's in your family, whether it's with your children, any decision that you make should be filtered through this one verse where you're doing things to please God. You're not doing it to please yourself. You're not doing it to try to please other people. You're not doing it to try to achieve greatness. You know what you do? The things you do, the motivation behind everything you do is to please God. We're not trying to please ourselves. We don't desire to please other people. We're pleasing God. You know, previously in chapter 2, verse 4, you know what Paul says? We speak as approved by God, entrusted by God with the gospel, speaking not pleasing men, but God who knows our hearts. Why does he minister? How does he minister? With that motivation. We're speaking, we're ministering, we're doing things to please God. Now, I want you to know something there about, about that one verse, because it's not a matter of choice for the Christian. You as a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, if he's your Lord, if he's your master, if he's your savior, this here is not a recommendation. This is not a suggestion. This is not uh, something that is good for you to do. Notice what it is. It's not a matter of choice for the Christian. This is a matter of obligation. And this pleasing God only grows out of a relationship with Christ Jesus. I want you to know that you will never be able to please God apart from an intimate relationship with the Son, Jesus Christ. How do we please God? By submitting to Christ Jesus. How do we please God? By listening to what Jesus is telling us through his word. How do we please God? Out of a now time of devotion, spending time with Jesus Christ. That's, why, that's how it happens. And he says, you know, you receive, you've learned how you ought to, you must please God. Now, notice this. This should be the now number one motivation for Christian life, to please God. And I want you to know something this morning. If we please God, it does not matter who you displease. Pay attention to that. If you please God, it does not matter who you displease. And if you displease God, it doesn't matter who you do please. Our motivation should be pleasing God. That is the major motivation. He's striking the root here of discipleship. He's coming here to the now matter of confession that challenges the reality of our profession. When you say that you're a Christian, then you must be pleasing God. In fact, how can you say that you're a Christian? How can you profess to know God? How can you profess to love God if you're not seeking to please him? How many times have you heard someone, yeah, I'm a Christian, I love God, I know him, but do you seek to please him? Here he's coming to the root of the heart. He's saying, if you profess to know him, if you profess to love him, then you must be pleasing him. Isn't that what Jesus did? In John chapter 8, verse 29, he says, and he who sent me is with me, Jesus, speaking of the Father. The Father has not left me alone. Think about the confidence. He's not left me alone, for I always do those things that please him. Why is the Father always with the Son? Because the Son always does the things that please the Father. Paul made it very clear in 2 Corinthians 5.9 as to when we are to please the Lord. He would say this, therefore we make it our aim. This is the goal. This is the target. We don't want to miss the mark. 
Do you know what the goal and the target is? Is there purpose in the life that you're living in right now? Is there a target that you are aiming towards, that you are striving for? What is the goal? He said, we make it our aim, the target. We're laser focused on this, our aim, whether we're present or absent, to be well-pleasing to him. That should be the bullseye target for every Christian believer to please him. Every single day, we wake up, Lord, today, the goal is to please you. That we would say we're a, a Christian, we're a man of God for the women, that you are a woman of God, that God is well-pleased in. That he's pleased in your life. This is what he's saying. I exhort you to grow and grow just as you have received as to how to please God. Now, do you know that pleasing God is done by obedience to his word? You want to please him? Then open up the Bible. Whatever he says, you do it. In fact, the Bible says this in John, 1 John 3, 22. The apostle would say, whatever we ask, we receive from him because we keep his commandments and do those things that are pleasing in his sight. What is it that we do? We keep his commandments and then we do those things that are pleasing in his sight. We're doing those things with integrity that are pleasing in God's sight, under the sight of God, under the eye of God. We are pleasing in his sight. We're obeying his word. We're keeping his commandments. Now, I want you to know something very important today is that it is possible to obey God and yet not please him. You need to hear that again. I'll tell you this. It is possible to obey God and not please him. Let me give you an example, Jonah in the Bible. He, ple- he obeyed God. He did what God commanded, but his heart was not in it. And how many times does God tell us to do something and we do it? We refuse maybe, we complain, we gripe about it. And we say, all right, Lord, we're going to do what you said. And we do what he, sa- what he says. In fact, he even blessed his word in Jonah's situation, but he did not bless his servants. We have to be very careful that when it comes to serving the Lord, when it comes to doing for God, is that we don't do it with an outward motivation. It comes from the heart. That our hearts are not divided, that when we obey him, we're obeying him from the heart. So that it pleases God. God looks at your life from the inside out. He's looking at the heart to see if the heart is obedient as well. Not just the outward action and expression and performance. It's not about that. It's about obeying God's word from the heart, that that we please him and we do what's right in his sight. I heard about a man that had come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior, and he was very convicted because prior to coming to Jesus, he had cheated on his taxes. This is a good story during tax season. And... He writes a letter to the IRS. Enclosed in that letter is a $500 check written to the IRS. And he said, to whom it may concern, I've come to know Jesus as my Lord and Savior. I feel convicted and compelled by the Holy Spirit because I've cheated on my taxes 10 years ago. Here's a check of $500. At the bottom, then he wrote, P.S. If I still feel bad, I'll send the rest. How many times do we do what's pleasing only in our sight? We must do what's pleasing in his sight. We must walk in a way that pleases God. Now, I'm going to give you a few reminders as to what kind of walk pleases God, and I pray that you would write these down today. Number one, walking by faith pleases him. Would you note that? Walking by faith pleases him. The Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, for we walk by faith and not by sight. Walking by faith means you trust him. This is how you please him. In fact, the Old Testament, we learn of a man named Enoch, then described in the hall of faith in Hebrews eleven five. 5, it says, by faith Enoch was taken so that he did not see death and was not found because God had taken him. One day Enoch went out to walk with God and then he was taken. He didn't return home. For before he was taken, he had this testimony that he pleased God. That was the testimony of Enoch. He pleased God. He never saw death. He was walking by faith. God took him. But without faith, he's an example. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. 
Today, I want you to know that if you want to please God, it's going to take that you trust Him. You can't say you please Him if you are not trusting Him right now. Whatever He's saying in your walk, if He's telling you, I want you to take another step of faith, and you're resisting, you're hesitating, or you're not obeying when it comes to your trust, notice what takes place. You cannot please God. For without faith, it is impossible to please God, for he who comes to God must believe that He is. First, believe that He is that he is God, that he is sovereign, that he's in control, and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. Walking by faith pleases God. Number two, walking in newness of life pleases God. Walking in a new life pleases God. Romans 6.4. It says, therefore, we were buried with him through baptism into death, that just as Christ raised us from the dead, or just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we should also walk in newness of life. What does that mean? That you're not walking your new life the old way. You, you are called to walk in newness of life. You're walking in one direction. Christ got a hold of your heart in life. You stopped. You made an about face, repented, and started walking in newness of life. Walking in newness of life pleases God. We're called to walk in a new life. Number three, walking in the Spirit pleases God. What does it mean to walk in the Spirit? It means that you're walking submitted to the control of the Holy Spirit in your life. Your emotions are not controlling you. Your feelings are not controlling you. Other people's opinions are not controlling you. The lust of the flesh is not controlling you. Galatians 5.16, I say that walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. That means that you're under the governance of the Holy Spirit. He has the authority. He has the rulership over your life. So you don't give in to the lust or to the desires that satisfy or bring pleasure to the flesh. You're walking in the power of the Holy Spirit. That pleases God. Number four, walking worthy pleases God. What does it mean to walk worthy? That you're walking consistent to your walk. You're walking consistent to your calling. In Colossians 1.10, it would say this, that you would walk worthy or consistent of the Lord. But when you say you're a Christian, people say, I believe you because of the way that you live your life. You're walking worthy. Worthy means an equal weight, where you put your life on one side of the scale and your calling on the other side of the scale and has an equal balance because you're walking now according to your calling or worthy of the Lord. Notice Colossians 1.10, fully pleasing him, being fruitful in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. You see here how walking by faith pleases him, how walking in the newness of life pleases him, by walking in the spirit pleases him, by walking worthy pleases him, by walking not as the unsaved as well. Write that down, walking not as the unsaved. Ephesians 4.17, Paul told the church of Ephesus, you have to know how to walk, how to please God. It matters that you walk the right way. How many times have you heard, you know what, you can talk the talk, but can you walk that talk? Ephesians 4.17 would say, this I say therefore, and testify in the Lord that you should no longer walk as the rest of the Gentiles walk. Don't walk just because everyone is walking that direction. You may say, well, everyone is doing this. That doesn't mean that you have to walk that way. You are not to pattern your walk according to the walk of the world. You're to pattern your walk consistent to Scripture because they're walking in the futility of their mind. They're walking with an empty mind, the Bible says. So do not walk that way anymore. They may walk that way, but they don't know better. You know better now. How about this? Number six, walk in love. Walk in love. What does that mean, Ephesians 5.2? That others would recognize that you are a Christian because you're walking in love. You're displaying the love of Christ. These are all the evidences that you're walking in a way that pleases Him. By faith, in the Spirit, not as the unsaved. Walking worthy. Walking by faith. Walking in love. But what about this, Ephesians 5.8? Walking in the light. No longer in deceit. No longer in destruction. No longer hidden in the sin that you were in before. You're, now you've come out. You live in the light now. The Bible says, Ephesians 5, 8, walk as children 
of the light. Don't walk in darkness. Don't walk in sin. Don't walk in the shadows of where you used to now perform those evil deeds of the nature of the flesh. You are to come out of the dark into the light. If today you're walking in the dark still and you claim to know Jesus, I pray that today you make a decision to come out of the darkness and walk in the light of Jesus now. The purpose of your walk is to please him. Remember that this morning. The purpose of your walk is to please him. Today, people talk about pleasing themselves only. The generation that we live in today, it's all about self-pleasure, self-preservation. It has everything to do with pleasing self, or you please your emotions, you follow your emotions, or you do what makes you feel good. That's what's destroying the culture and generation society today. People say, you know what, I, I did this because it made me feel good. Or because it feels right. It brings me pleasure. It doesn't matter what makes you feel good, what, what brings you pleasure. Or what about this? Just follow your heart. That has to be the worst advice someone can give you. The Bible says that your heart is desperately wicked. It is deceitful. It will lie to you. It will lie to you. You are not to follow your heart. You know, you are to follow God's word. Follow what he's saying. This is not an option to please God. I want you to know that in verse 1, it is a command. You have been saved by the work of Jesus Christ. That means that he has bought you with a price. That means that he has paid the price for your life. He has purchased you. You were a slave to sin. He paid the price. He freed you. Now you are a slave of Christ. You know what that means, that you're a slave of Christ? That you belong to a new master. That is Jesus. He's your Lord. He's your master. You call him Lord. You know what the word Lord means? Master. That means we're servants of the Lord. We're servants of Jesus. He's our master. You know what a slave does? If you use the context and picture, illustration of a slave, he exists to please his master. We as slaves of Christ, as servants of Christ, as bond servants, exists to please our master. He purchased us. He bought us. He has ownership rights over us. The Bible would say in 1 Corinthians 6.20, note this this morning, 1 Corinthians 6.20, for you were bought at a price. When you purchase something, you know what happens? You have ownership over it. And it doesn't belong to who it used to belong to. You purchase it, you paid in full, you own it, you have the rights, you have possession over it. And the Bible says that you were bought with a price, the blood of Jesus Christ, therefore glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body and in your spirit, which are God's. Did you know that God not only owns your heart, he also owns your spirit. And you know with that, what, what comes with it? Your body. If you've given God your heart, you know what follows that immediately? Your body. If you have given God your heart, what follows that is your body. He owns that as well. So many times people say, well, God, I've given him my heart. And you can't say you've given the Lord your heart if your body still belongs to the world. It doesn't work that way. So he says, I exhort you to please God. This is what you should do. But now he tells us in verse 2 and 3 how to do it. What are you to do? Verse 1, please God. How are you to do it? Verse 2 and 3, in obedience to obey God. For you know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. Now you have to love there where the Holy Spirit gives us those words for you know. And I want you to circle that in your Bible Pay attention to it because you're accountable to what you know. You can't say you didn't know. Today, maybe you leave and you think, you know what I can say? I didn't know it was sin. Yeah, you did. I just told you. It's sin. And you're accountable to what you know, what you receive, what you learn from them. You know this. What is it that you know? You know what commandments we gave you through the Lord Jesus. You know the commandments. You know what you were taught by the commandments through the Lord Jesus. Again, notice how he uses the Lord Jesus one more time. You remember the commandments we gave you in the authority of the Lord Jesus. This is not coming from Paul. 
in the authority of the Lord Jesus, your master, you know what you were commanded to do. I'm just the, the messenger. You know what your master has commanded you to do because we told you. This is God's commandment. This was our Lord's commandment, that we obey his word, that we obey his commandments. Now, look at the word command. You know what it is? It's a military term. It's a term that is so graphic and strong and provocative in the sense that it requires a response. And the word command is a military term that describes an order from an officer to a subordinate, an order that here comes from the Lord Jesus Christ and not from Paul, but to the church. So the Lord, being our commander, speaks to the subordinate servants, slaves of Christ, the church, saying, you must obey his commandments. You think about a soldier that is out doing drill or about to go out into battle. And his sergeant, a commanding officer, gives him orders. He does not have the option. He does not have the privilege. He does not have the right to say, you know what, I just don't feel like it right now. What do you think would happen? He can't say, well, it's too hot out there. Well, you know, I just, that doesn't really bring me a lot of pleasure to do that or to go out and fight right now. No, he is under the orders of his commander. I want you to know this something, and you have to really get it straight in your mind. You are under the orders of your commander. It's the Lord Jesus. He has given you specific commandments. And here he's just only setting it up. He's reminding them, I want you to know who this is coming from, that you have received your orders. And you know what those orders are? Those orders are the following in light of the prevailing low standard of society because of the sexual seductive strength of sexual immorality of the first century Roman culture, I need to tell you this, he says. And I don't want you to get a background as to who he's telling this to and why he's saying the following. Because the culture then and the culture today is the same. It was a very much so seductive strength that was now pulling on the lives of men and women through seductive and sexual immorality. I, I need you to receive your orders so that you know how to live your life in a world that continues to sell sexual perversion. You think about the culture that we live in today, that's all it sells. You turn on the TV, a commercial, somehow it involves sexual innuendos. You drive down the freeway, you see billboards. You can't drive past a few exits without seeing sexual advertisements. Everything that the commercial world, that the God of this age, the devil, sells through sexual appetites. You know why he's saying this? Because for the very first time, they were faced with the fact that worshiping God involved living a holy life. Pay attention to that today because worshiping God is not an environment. That's not what it means to worship God. Worshiping God is not an experience. People think, you know what? We worshiped the Lord. We went to a concert. It was amazing. It was a great production. That, that, that's not necessarily worshiping God only. You know the problem with worship experiences today? And, and it's sad to see what they've become is that people worship more the experience than they worship the Lord. Worshiping the Lord, you know what? It involves a holy life. It doesn't matter whether you can sing or not. It involves a holy life. He's teaching us how to please God. How do you please God in a world that is ungodly? How do you please God when the world continues to try to pull you in into sexual perversion? How do you please God when the temptations are there in your cell phone, in the computer, in the TV? How do you please God? How do you please God when it's only you and him and no one else is in the room? Notice verse 3, it says this very clearly, for this is the will of God. He's telling you why, what to do, how to do it, why to do it. Why, verse 3, because it's God's will. All of God's will is contained in God's word. Know that. You want to know God's will? It's here in his word. God's will is not something that's foreign, it's distant, it's impersonal. It's very personal. It's in his word for your life specifically. When you think about God's will, notice what it means. God's will means his intended purpose for your life. 
When you're walking in the will of God, you're walking with the purpose that God had intended for you. Think about how many people are struggling, they're discouraged, they're just, their lives are destroyed because they're not walking according to God's purpose. They're not progressing. God's will means the thing he willed for your life. His purpose for your life is this, so that you wouldn't be defeated. So many people come up and say, well, pastor, I, just pray for me. I want to know what God's will is for my life. I, I want to tell you this today. You don't have to wonder. You don't have to be lost when it comes to his will. You know what you have to do? Open the Bible. He'll tell you what his will for your life is there. You don't have to be lost. In fact, un undoubtedly, through Scripture, there are several verses where the Holy Spirit says, this is the will of God. He makes it that plain for us. Isn't that awesome? Sometimes we don't get it. So he says, this is the will of God. Here's a, a, a stop sign. Know this. This is the will of God. If you want to know what it is. In fact, I want to give you here five times in the Bible where it says, this is the will of God. Because if you follow these basic truths and we're grounded with these basic, non-negotiable, clear areas of obeying the will of God, then discovering God's will in a particular circumstance and situation is going to be much easier because you know, undoubtedly, this is non-negotiably His will. It's unalterable. You can't change this. This is God's will. If you follow this, when it comes to specific situations, circumstances, and scenarios, it will be easier for you to deduce what God's will is for you then. Notice, number one, sanctification or holiness is his will for your life. Sanctification and holiness is his will for your life. What does it mean? Purity. 1 Thessalonians 4.3. We're going to read it right now. That is God's will for your life. Number two, redeeming the time we're giving. Ephesians 5.15. That is also God's will for your life. Today you may ask yourself, what does God want me to do? He wants you to redeem the time. He wants you to understand what his will is. He wants you not to waste time. You know how many young people today waste time? They waste time. Even, it doesn't matter how old you are. In fact, you can be wasting time right now because you're living according to what pleases you instead of what pleases God. Redeeming the time, that is God's will. Making the most out of time. Working hard. Using up the time for God's purpose. That is his will, Ephesians 5. Ephesians 6, notice, number three, doing our work as unto the Lord. That is God's will. You want to do God's will? You want to do what pleases him? Tomorrow, go back to work. Start working for God, not for your boss. You'll be doing his will. You'll be pleasing God. That is his will as well for your life. 1 Thessalonians 5, number four, praying without ceasing or praying thankfully. That is also, this is the will of God that we always maintain ourselves in an attitude of prayer, that we always maintain an attitude of thanksgiving, of gratitude. That is God's will for our lives. And then 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 13, obeying various governments under which we live. This is God's will. The Holy Spirit makes it very clear. Sanctification and holiness, redeeming the time, doing our work as unto the Lord, praying without ceasing and thankfully, obeying various forms of government. These are God's will. Now, I want you to take just these verses. There are many more. But even just these truths, if you're grounded in knowing this is God's will for my life, and these are the parameters, these are the guardrails in which I'm going to live my life, then now understanding his will in a specific situation is going to be more clear. And this is why he says it in verse 3, why? For this is the will of God, his purpose and his perfect intention for your life. In an ungodly world that you live in, and as much as it was a problem in the church then, notice it's a problem in the church today. Now I want you to know why he's speaking to the issue of sexual sin. He, he was speaking to the issue of sexual sin because that's the backdrop of what they were living in. So if you came and you were a believer of Jesus Christ, that means that you came from a life of sexual sin in Thessalonica. So he says, based on your past, I need to tell you this, leave that behind. Don't bring that with you. Today, many of us need to hear that when it comes to sexual sin. Leave that behind. That's not the life you should live anymore. You're to leave that behind because you're going to be tempted with the things that you did in your past, so leave that behind. 
Now, know this. This is not for the world. This is for the church. There was a church in Corinth that he was speaking to, and in 1 Corinthians 5, he said, it's actually reported to me that there's sexual sin among you and that a man is sleeping with his mother-in-law and you haven't done anything about it. Why is there sexual sin in the church? You hear about it, scandal stories. Men and women that have compromised in the church with sexual sin, and here he's calling the church to sexual purity. Now, do you know why he says this? Because the standards that we live by when it comes to sexual morality, you know where they should come from? From God's word, not the world. What's the standard? The standard is not what your friend is doing. The standard is not what the world paints for us to follow or what's attractive, what's lucrative, what, what seems appealing and enticing from the world. That is not where we are to get our standards regarding sexual morality. We should get the standards of sexual morality from the Scripture. You know, the world doesn't even know the difference between a man and a woman these days. How are we going to get our standard from the world? The Bible says he created one male, one female. That is how the Lord has designed it. So we are to receive our standards from God's word. And don't be scared of who you offend. Remember, you are to please God. Now notice this. This is the will of God, your sanctification. What's God's will? Your sanctification. That's what's God's will. The word sanctification means holiness, that you're set apart from sin, you're dedicated for God's use. You've been sanctified. God's will is that you remain clean now, that you grow to be more like Jesus, that you grow to be more and more like Christ. That's why it says abound more and more. And know that sanctification is to be not only set apart for God's special use, but it indicates a present result from a past action. The present result is that we're becoming more like Christ. The past action is that we became sanctified when he washed us with his blood at the cross. Now that past action produces a present result that continues in a work of the Holy Spirit in us. Sanctification has been done once for all, but its effects should continue more and more in our lives. We should continually be separated, grow more like Jesus, be more loving, Walk in grace, live pure lives, be set apart for his special use. So he says this, your, God's will for your life is your purity, not your pleasure. Remember that. There are three types of sanctifications that you learn in the Bible. The first one is positional sanctification. And I want you to know this as you grow as a Bible student. It means that every believer has been sanctified, has been washed in Christ Jesus the moment he or she believes. That's what you're called a saint. That's what you're called holy, you're clean, you're set apart for God. The Bible says that you used to be as others were in, in sin, but you've come out of sin and you have been sanctified. You've been washed by the blood of Jesus Christ. It's a positional sanctification. You were washed the moment that you received Jesus Christ. That moment, sanctification began. But then there's also progressive sanctification after positional sanctification. That means that it progresses when you become more like Jesus. And this is what he's talking about here in Thessalonians 4, it's a process more often than a result. That means that you're growing constantly. It involves separation from what's evil to be set apart for what is holy. That's why the Hebrew says, pursue peace with all people and holiness, for without it, no one will see the Lord. This is what you are to pursue, progressive sanctification. The third one is ultimate sanctification. That means that we will ultimately be sanctified perfectly when we get to heaven. Then and only then will we be delivered and set apart from the nature of this body of sin and be set apart unto perfect holiness, away from sin, apart from sin, unto God. We shall be like he is then. This is God's will for your life. Notice this. Now notice God's will for your life in verse 3, that you should abstain from sexual immorality. So because this is his will for your life, so then stay away from all sexual sin. So then, stay away from all and any sexual illicit activity or behavior. The word immorality, I want you to know this. You know what it comes from? It's that Greek word pornea. Pornea. 
It's where we receive the word pornography. And a lot of people get uncomfortable when you say this word, but you know, know why. It's because studies have shown, the Barna Research recently did a study showing that at least 50 to 70% of people that go to church have admitted and confessed that they have in some capacity viewed pornography within the last 12 months. He's saying here, God's will for your life is that you would abstain from any kind of sinful, sexual sin or activity outside of the marriage covenant. I want to make it very clear so that you're not confused. Any sexual activity, pay attention to this, any sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant is sin. There is no sexual activity outside of the marriage covenant that is not sin. It is sin. That's why he says abstain, practice abstinence. Don't participate in it. Don't be involved. That is not God's will for your life. You know how it begins in lust? With the desire that the flesh has, and now the flesh wants to satisfy the desire. And it wants to please itself instead of pleasing God. You know what that, that lust leads to? Fornication. Sex outside of marriage. Sex before marriage. You'd be surprised how many people go to church, are not married, and are having sexual relations with one another. That is not God's will for your life. How do you expect God to bless that? How do you expect God to bless that marriage? And people say, you know what, we're living together, we're having sexual relations, we want to get married. You know what I'll say? Separate. Because you want to take that step of faith in purity and holiness before the Lord. Well, you know what, our friends are doing it. You know, we've been living together for a long time. It doesn't matter. Who do you want to please, yourself, or you want to please the Lord? Not only that, fornication, sex before marriage, but what about adultery, unfaithfulness? When you were to be faithful to one wife or one husband, and now you have been unfaithful, and notice what has happened, sexual sin has taken place. You see it many times, there's a little compromise. It starts with an emotional conversation, attraction, then it results into a physical, now adultery. The world likes to call it affair, but you know what it is? Adultery. What about this? Homosexuality, that's also sexual sin. It's not God's intended purpose or will. Abstain from this. And notice also the, the very popular one that is destroying many marriages, destroying many families is pornography. Well, you would say, well, you know what? I, I didn't really have sex with someone else that wasn't my spouse, but you watch something. And the Bible says if you watch something, you looked at a woman with lust for her in your heart, you've already committed adultery. You see, it's not good enough to say, well, I haven't had sexual intercourse with another person who's not my spouse. It is not good enough just to say that. You know what this refers to? Any and all sexual behavior outside of marriage, that is sin. You would ask yourself, well, what about this? Is this sexual sin? If, if it cannot be done in faith, just think about this. If it cannot be done in faith, then it is sin. Because the Bible says in Romans 14, 23, for whatever is not from faith, it is sin. So abstain from it. Have nothing to do with it. The question should not be, how far can I go and still be right with God? Can I go straight you know, to that line and still be okay with God? I, I didn't really look at pornography. I didn't really touch or, or do. I just saw. The, the question should not be, how far can I go? The question should be, how can I be holy? How can I be set apart, ready to do his will? Now, notice this. When it comes to sexual now morality, is that God grants sexual liberty in the marriage covenant. It, it is a gift from God to be enjoyed, celebrated between husband and wife, only under that circumstance. Hebrews 13, 4, it says, Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. Within the marriage covenant, it is holy. God's given freedom and liberty between husband and wife only in that environment and covenant and promise and circumstance. And the reason why it's important to talk about sexual morality in the church is because Satan is, is not very subtle in his strategy. I want you to know that. You know what he wants to do to destroy families when it comes to sexual sin? He will do everything to encourage, whether it's a family or it's not a family, to lead one to sin, is to encourage, notice this, 
sex outside of marriage. He will do everything he can to encourage sex outside of marriage in your life. But he also will do everything to discourage sex in marriage. You know what happens? It leads to temptation and also to sin. Both encouraging sex before marriage and discouraging sex in marriage are both alike these traps that the enemy will put in order to lead us to sin. Here he's saying, if you're going to please God, you must be holy in this area. Be careful what you're looking at. Be careful what you're entertaining. Be careful what you are receiving and hearing in your eye, in your ears that you don't think that's funny. There's so many sexual innuendo jokes that some people think they're funny. As a Christian, if someone tells you a joke like that, you'd say, I don't think that's funny. Because that is not pleasing in his sight. How many times have we heard you should stay pure until marriage? I, I want to tell you the second part. You never hear this. You should be pure even after marriage. You should keep yourself pure after marriage. Pure before God. Pure before your spouse. Knowing that God's perfect will is that you would put your body on the altar as a sacrifice. Would you turn to your Bibles as we close to Romans chapter 12? And this would sum up God's will for our lives again in Romans 12.1. Many of people have strayed away from God's perfect will because they please themselves, they please the flesh instead of pleasing God's will. It has destroyed families, destroyed marriages because this area of sexual sin was not under control. There was compromise. There was backsliding. There was illicit behavior. That led to a destroyal of people's lives, spiritual walks to begin with. In Romans 12, 1, it says, I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, because of what God's done for you, that you present, this is your response, your body, a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God. What are, what are you to do because of what God's done to you, for you? You are to bring your life, your body on the altar. Let your body be the sacrifice. The Old Testament they would bring an animal that was pure, that was undefiled, and had no defects. Well, today in the New Testament, because of what Christ has done for us, we should bring our lives at the altar and say, Lord, here's my body. Let my body be the sacrifice in response at the altar Holy, this is how God wants your body on the altar, acceptable to God, pleasing to God. That's what it means. That your body on the altar would please God, which is your reasonable service. This is the only thing reasonably that makes sense as a response for what God has done for you. And do not, do not be conformed to this world. Don't conform yourself to the pattern, to the standard, to the thinking of the world. Sometimes we think, well, that's okay. That's what the world teaches you. It doesn't matter what the world thinks. This is what the Bible says. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. That's where it begins with. So many people say, I can't stop. I have an addiction to one thing or to the other, or I, 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 I am constantly falling into temptation. You know what, where, where the transformation begins? The renewing of your mind. Ask God to wash your mind so that you don't have that desire anymore to fall into sexual sin. Be transformed by beginning with the renewing of your mind that you may prove. This is the only thing you need to prove in life. In fact, you're trying to prove something else, stop. Just stop today. Prove this. That you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. What is God asking of you? That you would bring your body onto the altar. And if you if you strayed, if your body's not on the altar, it was at one point, but you got off the altar and you started doing something else, today is the day that you come and you put your body back on the altar. You say, Lord, here's my body. Take it all. Here it is. I'm a living sacrifice, wholly acceptable to you. You know, the Lord is so faithful. He told his people in the Old Testament, Isaiah chapter one, come now, let us reason together. Come on, let us reason together. Let's talk about this. Says the Lord, though your sins are like scarlet, yes, you may have sin. This is amazing. They shall be white as snow. He will forgive you. He will wash you with his blood. Though they are like crimson, though they are stained. Notice that. Though your life is stained now. You may think, well, I'm stained. 
I feel dirty. I feel ashamed. Notice, they will be white as a wool. He will make you pure. He will make you clean. But notice, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. God cannot do this if you're not willing and if you're not obedient. You want to be cleansed by the Lord? You have to be willing and obedient. Say, Lord, today, would you remove those stains and wash me with your blood only through the cross of Jesus Christ? I want to invite you if today, with every eye closed and every head bowed, if today you're saying, today's the day that I need to be cleansed by Jesus Christ. I need him to wash those stains of the past. It's only through Jesus Christ, a relationship with Jesus Christ, that is the only way that I can do this. And today that's you, the Lord would say, come now and let us reason together.